gentlemen, welcome to Oral Presentations Podcast. This is episode 89, and it's called TMZ, Edgar Allan Poe and the Cask of Amontillado. What's up? It's October, so yeah, we're going to do Edgar Allan Poe. Uh, I didn't, I don't, other than having a drinking problem, I don't know if I remember anything from 6th grade, 7th grade. Does, do you know where he came from? I assume Edgar Allan Poe came out of like a portal in Baltimore at some point in time. There's like a uh, like a black and lavender portal that goes to like the netherworld. I don't know if you've played Mortal Kombat. That hits that hits home. Anyway, so I don't know where he came from. I don't know why he started writing creepy shit, and I didn't know any of his stories except for being able to lie about the Telltale Heart and the Raven, and just make it up and be like, ah, oh, heart heartbeat and made a guy go nuts, and then uh, bird. Bad luck. Showing bad luck. That bird comes around, things start going bad. That's it. That's all I knew. But everybody knows the name, right? Edgar Allan Poe, so it's October. Why don't we do it? Why don't we figure out what's going on? So I looked at a, a handful of his stories, and I wanted to go deep cut, because, you know, I'm already good enough to lie about a couple of them, so we'll leave those. Those are the easy ones. So I found the cask of Amatolato. And it's one of a pair of stories that I didn't I didn't know that Edgar Allan Poe wrote these type of stories. They're called they're revenge tales. And uh both the cask of Amatolato and the other one that he wrote, Hop Frog. They're revenge tales, and they were also so they they what do you call it? Center around uh tales of revenge. But what's really like interesting about it is that I found out Edgar Allan Poe wrote these at people. Which makes it, I don't know, I wouldn't call it unacceptable, but, you know, that's a, that's a strong move that uh, both Hop Frog and the Cask of Amatolato uh, are written directly at people. And they're, even if you don't know Edgar Allan Poe's stories, if you could just guess out, out, you know, what do you think happens in an Edgar Allan Poe story, both of those fit right into that, that you would think of, like, horrible shit happens, somebody dies... There might be torture involved. Somebody's getting burned to death. Yep, both those stories. Well, we're going to do the Cask of Amatolato, so you'll know exactly what that one's about by the end of this. But both of them written at people. So, the way this episode's going to go, or I'm sorry, the re one of the reasons why I picked Edgar Allan Poe and I wanted his backstory is because when, like way back when we did Electricity, uh, a footnote in the Electricity episodes, I, don't, I think it was episode 11, was that once they found a way to harness electricity, one of the first things that people started doing was holding live shows where they shocked dead bodies to see if they could come back to life. They were just, you know, they were trying out the technology, right? So Mary Shelley, author of Frankenstein, went to one of those live shows when they first harnessed electricity and they were just shocking dead bodies to see what happens. Mary Shelley went there, saw it, and then it's noted that she was inspired to write Frankenstein based on that being like, Jesus, what if they actually nail it and they shock a dead body back to life? What's that going to be like? And then that kernel of a thought turned into Frankenstein. So that's kind of what I was looking for here with Edgar Allan Poe. I wanted, I wanted why, why, where'd you get this? Like what? Some of these are pretty offbeat, dude. Where are these ideas coming from? Where'd you come from? So that's the way this episode is going to be structured is that the first part is just a short Edgar Allan Poe. This man did not come out of a portal. Where does he hail from? 
The second part is going to be the drama backstory behind the story we're going to look at, the Cask of Amontillado. you got to get the TMZ story behind that to be able to make the Cask of Amontillado. Like, it's not a bad story. You know, it's, great, it's a great story, you know? But it's only, uh, I actually looked it up. The Cask of Amontillado is only 2,495 words long. And so to put that in perspective, George Orwell's 1984 was 88,942 words long. So the Cask of Amontillado is a short story. It's less than 2,500 words. And I looked up how many words a writer is supposed to write per day. So I see if I can get a fact on that. Like, there's different opinions on it. But in 1897, Mark Twain said that he wrote like 800 words. Or, I'm sorry, 1,800 words. Almost 2,000 words a day when he was writing. So Mark Twain is quoted as like 1,800 words a day. And so the Cask of Amontillado... Is 2,495 words, and I wanted to find that out because after we learn about the drama behind the Cask of Amontillado, I wanted to see if Edgar Allan Poe, hypothetically, could have written this entire story in one blackout of just furious anger. And if you go by Mark Twain's stat of 1,800 words a day, I mean, that's that's certainly short of the... 2495 mark of the cask of Amontillado, but I think it's within the ballpark that if Edgar Allan Poe was blacked out and furious, he, he might've been able to get this whole story done just in one, in one session of absolutely out of his mind upset and then writing the story about it. So anyway, short Poe bio, then we're going to hit NYC literary scene drama of 1846 and then we'll hit the actual story of the cask of Amontillado but there is going to be a short little musical break in between we're going to do bio then we're going to do literary scene drama short music break and then the actual we're just going to run through the plot of the cask of Amontillado it's not a long story but we are going to run through it at the end of the episode and point out pieces of it that were specifically directed at the guy that Poe wrote this at when he was out of his mind no proof whether or not he was blacked out actually there's no proof whether he was mad. maybe he was just totally composed and thought this was a good idea you be the judge there's no proof on this but given the life circumstances and the drama that was going on at the time i think he he wrote this shit so mad i think he was furious when he wrote the cask of amatolata so all right short bio start it off let's get it all right edgar Allan poe Born in 1809, and he died in 1849. Had a short run, 40 years. All right, so when he was born, 1809, Edgar Allan Poe's parents, both his mom and dad, were actors. Those biological mom and dad. Now, so he was born in 1809. His biological dad left the family in 1810, so it was just him and his mom. And then two years later, that mom died of pneumonia. So Edgar Allan Poe was an orphan at like three, four years old. Okay, he was then adopted by a rich guy in Virginia named John Allen. Okay, this is when and how Edgar Poe, son of two actor parents from Boston, becomes Edgar Allen Poe when he gets adopted by this rich dude, John Allen, who lives in Virginia. Now, John Allen never did the formal paperwork to actually make the adoption all the way. He, just, he was just like, I'll take him. I'll take that kid. And he actually, John Allen took uh, Edgar Allan Poe and Edgar Allan Poe's sister. They both got informally adopted by this rich dude, John Allen, in uh, in Virginia. Now, 
Edgar Allan Poe also had a brother. I believe it was an older brother who he was, he was close with. They were good friends and stuff. But John Allen didn't adopt the older brother. He only took Poe and his sister. So the older brother went to go live with grandparents down in Baltimore while Edgar Allan Poe, newly minted name Edgar Allan Poe, and his sister went to go live with this dude, John Allen. Okay? All right. So Edgar Allan Poe comes of age underneath John Allen. John Allen's a rich guy. They, like, sail around, put him in boarding schools and shit. But, all right, so, 1826, Edgar Allan Poe goes to the University of Virginia. Now, at this point in time, the University of Virginia was founded by Thomas Jefferson in 1819. And Edgar Allan Poe goes there in 1826. So, everything, like, everything's real new. Like, right, like uh, America is, like, less than 100 years old. And so, University of Virginia, Poe is of the 7th class, 7th or 8th class, found in 1819. He went there in 1826. Everything's real new with that learning facility. So, Poe goes there, and he went there to study, like, ancient languages or something. He was just feeling it out. I don't know exactly why he went, but it didn't work out. So, Poe goes to University of Virginia, takes a couple of classes, runs up a ton of debt. He has a, he loves the ponies. He is gambling. Actually, I don't know if he's betting on horses or what the hell he was betting on, but it said that he ran up a ton of gambling debt during his first semester at University of Virginia, right? So much so that he was writing letters back to his dad, John Allen, who's super rich and being like, yo, I don't have enough money for books, blah, blah, blah. And his dad, John Allen was not about it. And he was like, I fucking gave you that money. I know this is gambling shit, dude. What are you doing out there? So. Before Edgar Allan Poe left to go to the University of Virginia, right? Before the gambling debts got out of hand, things were already spiling for Edgar, right? But before he went to University of Virginia, Poe had a girlfriend that may have, they may have been like secretly engaged. They were definitely an item and Poe was into it, right? Her name was Sarah Elmira Royster, right? So then Poe is like engaged to her. All right, well, I'm going to go to University of Virginia. I'll learn some shit and then come on back. We'll get married, married, whatever, right? So Poe goes to University of Virginia, gambling problems, problems with money, leaves. He just leaves the University of Virginia. School's not for me, right? So he goes back home to Richmond where his dad's uh, place is at. And, like, this is where Sarah Royster was hanging out, right? Goes back to see his babe who he was engaged with. You know, college didn't work out. Let's find out. He goes back home. And after dropping out of college, he comes back to Richmond to find out. Sarah Elmira Royster is now full married to another dude. His name was Alexander Shelton. Oh, no. Oh, no. What happened, buddy? (laughs) Like, less than a year of classes. There that went. All right. Well, Alexander Shelton, just for a footnote here, was rich and well-connected at the time in Richmond, Virginia. He had family money and uh, political connections. Uh, He also owned a transportation company uh, that... Shipped cargo up and down the James River. Uh, he was uh, 17, I believe, at the time. And, uh, yeah. So, Alexander Sheldon and Sarah Elmira Royster, I looked into this. They were happily married uh, after after their first, you know, they get married. They stayed married for 17 years and had four kids together. So, that's how that worked out for Edgar Allan Poe. All right. So, that maybe wasn't the Richmond that he had hoped to come home from after what many people would consider fumbling his first couple semesters at University of Virginia. All right, Edgar, what are you still young? What are you going to do, dude? So after his 
fiance is now married happily with some other dude. He's got a bunch of boats and stuff, whatever. Edgar Allan Poe is like, all right, I'm going to Boston. I got, I'm going to Boston. I'm joining the army. It's army time. I got to go. Edgar Allan Poe goes to Boston and enlists in the army, May 27th, 1827. All right. Same year, couple months later, July of 1827, He's in the army up in Boston, and Edgar Allan Poe self-publishes a 40-page book of poems. It only prints 50 copies. He publishes it under a pseudonym, not even his real name. Nobody cares about it. Nobody cares, dude. Doesn't work. Oh, no, he's still in the army. Well, that same year... Okay, so Poe tries to publish something that totally does not work in July. October of 1927, Poe's brother, who he's good friends with, publishes a story that's really popular, and it's called The Pirate. Okay, it is based on Edgar Allan Poe and Sarah Royster's relationship in an adventure setting. Oh, no. Oh, no, buddy. So... I mean, the book, The Pirate, was popular. I'm sure Edgar Allan Poe was happy for his brother. I don't know if he got a chance to read it, though. He might. I mean, you want to be happy for your brother. He's got publishing success. However, yeah, dude, you mostly just wrote that relationship. I, I ran to Boston trying to forget into a book that's popular now, and I, I tried to publish something in July, and nobody gave a shit. So, you know, I'm just up here in the Army, man. I'm happy for you. Things are going okay. So... After 1927, all that happens. Edgar Allan Poe's still in the army up in Boston. He works two good years packing artillery shells, which is actually a skilled trade job at the time. So instead of the five bucks a month, he was getting 10 bucks a month. He's packing artillery shells up there. Now, after two years, Edgar Allan Poe then goes to his commanding officer and he's like, hey man, I signed a five-year contract. I did two years. Can I, can I get out of here? I, this has been fun, but I, I don't know if this is for me, man. I got to roll. So Edgar Allan Poe's commanding officer in Boston is like, no, dude. No, you signed a five-year contract. What do you thought? No, you can't go anywhere. And at this point in time, Edgar Allan Poe tells his commanding officer his real name and his whole story. Now, Edgar Allan Poe enlisted in the, in the army up in Boston under a fake name. I mean, which looks like running from your past even more so than the series of events leading up to that. So he went in on a fake name. He also published the poetry on a fake name. He was, he was making changes. Anyway, so he, tell, he comes clean to the commanding officer, and he's like, look, dude, my name's Edgar Allan Poe. You, know, you might know my dad, John Allen. And the commanding officer does know his dad because his dad, is, or his, like, uh, the, the guy who adopted him but didn't do the paperwork, that guy, John Allen, is like, he's like a Bezos character where he is, he's like a huge industrialist guy. Everybody knows him, whatever else. Now, whether or not Poe is on a rocky relationship with him, I, that, I mean, doesn't really matter as far as the commanding officer is concerned because the commanding officer now recognizes this guy's name. He gets the story. All right. So to make a compromise, commanding officer know, knows Poe wants to leave, knows Poe's dad's name, also knows that Poe is not on great terms with his dad. So the commanding officer is like, all right, dude, I'll rip up your enlistment papers. You're allowed to leave, but you got to apologize to your dad first. And so Poe is like, God damn it, dude. All right. So Edgar Allan Poe then spends a couple of months writing letters while he's still in the army doing the artillery shell thing. He's writing letters to his adopted or to his foster dad, John Allen. And he's like, yo, dad, uh, yeah, dad, 
Dad, help, Dad. Fuck it. Come on, man. So his his dad ignores the letters. Ignores the letters for months. Well, meanwhile, the commanding officer is waiting for these letters to come back and be like, all right, you can, whatever. But eventually, Edgar Allan Poe's dad does accept the apology. And some people speculate that it's because in 1929, John Allen's wife dies. Poe's adopted mom, she passes away. And then after that happens, John Allen accepts one of the many letters Edgar Allan Poe is writing to him. Like, yo, dude, I got to get out of this military contract. Can you just tell this guy that I'm cool? So eventually John Allen does square with the military commander. He's like, all right, let Edgar Allan Poe out. You know, we'll, we'll figure it out. So Edgar Allan Poe is then granted discharge from the army up in Boston. But the deal that his dad, John Allen, made with him is like, all right, you can leave the army, but you got to go to West Point. Now, oh, uh, just a side note here. I don't know if this is actually true or not, but between the military enlistment up in Boston and, like, wanting to do a good job as, like, an artillery packer guy, and then he also gets into West Point, which was, like, a very – it still is, like, a very prestigious military academy. Edgar Allan Poe's grandfather was – I believe it's grandfather. I should have double-checked this because it's a really cool fact – Okay, you know how his older brother went to go live in Baltimore because John Allen didn't adopt him? Well, the, the people that his older brother were living with are the, the Poe's, like the genetic family of Edgar Allan Poe. And I believe his grandfather was, he served like uh, with military honors in the American Revolution. So there's like, mil- there's military history to the biological side of Edgar Allan Poe's family which I, th- I think might have helped him get into West Point. I'm not really sure. Although his dad was a Bezos character at the time. So, I mean, he probably could have gotten him into it. Anyway, that's, that's the deal that Edgar Allan Poe strikes with his dad, John Allen, that lets him get out of the Boston thing. And his dad's like, all right, well, as long as you come back and then you go up to West Point, all right, that's fine. I still don't like the gambling debts thing, and I'm not really a huge fan of you, but this will be how we fix it. All right, so. Edgar Allan Poe leaves Boston, comes back, and he's about to go to West Point. But before he goes to West Point, Poe gets a second book published while living in Baltimore and waiting to go to West Point. Now, he self-published his first book under a pseudonym, and nobody gave a shit about it. Now, he actually was formally published by somebody else in 1829, and the name of his second book was uh, Al Arat. Tamerlane and Minor Poems, published in 1829. And I believe the the title of his first self-published thing that he didn't claim he used a pseudonym was just Tamerlane and Minor Poems. So the Al-Arat is new on this second book, So, but he might, I think he might have used dupes from, like, duplicate poems from his first thing that nobody ever read, and he was just like, all right, we'll put those in the second one. Let's see how it goes. So while he's waiting to go to West Point, he's in Baltimore, publishes his second book. Now... After the second book is published, Edgar Allan Poe is quoted as saying, the very first words of of encouragement I ever remember to have heard, and those came from prominent literary and poetry critic John Neal, right after the publication of his second book. I said that about as sloppily as possible, I feel like. But anyway, Edgar Allan Poe publishes a second book while he's waiting to go to West Point. John Neal, who's a, a huge deal literary critic, and like a a figure in American literature at the time, takes note of Poe's work and gives him a glowing review on like, this is a young kid who's got something, this guy's doing something. 
which is great for Poe's writing career, but he still has to go to West Point. He made the deal with his dad. Still got to go to West Point. Just a couple footnotes on this dude, John Neal. Okay, so he was the first American published in British literary journals because the British literary or the American literary scene was like super new. We're still in like 1830, so like nobody respects anything that's written in America by anybody. Um, but this dude, John Neal, got published in British journals, which was huge. He was also the first to use the phrase son of a bitch in a work in fiction. And on a personal note, the guy championed gymnasiums. He was big on gyms. He was big on gymnasiums. He said that uh, he struggled with anger problems his whole life. And so he was big on gyms. And this was in like 1830. This guy was like, you got to work out. Get that anger out of you. I'm telling I've had anger problems my whole life. I just sit there. I, pick, I don't even know what kind of working out you did back then. Just running or calisthenics. I don't, I don't really know. There's probably, I don't know, military drills or something, jumping jacks. But either way, this dude, John Neal, uh, he was also uh, big on women's suffrage, he, and like, he loved gymnasiums, So, and admits to having anger problems. So, cool little footnote there, John Neal put on Edgar Allan Poe, 1829, but Poe still got to square, square that deal with his dad. So, July 1st, 1830, Edgar Allan Poe goes to West Point. Now, while he's at West Point, his foster dad, John Allen, remarries some other woman. Edgar Allan Poe and his foster dad, John Allen, have a falling out over it. Apparently, it got pretty nasty. Edgar Allan Poe was like, how can you remarry somebody so quickly? And John Allen was like, you're not even my son, dude. What are you talking about? We, did, we never did the foster papers. You're not my kid. I don't want to hear about it. They have a falling out. All right. February 8th, 1831, Edgar Allan Poe is court-martialed and kicked out of West Point. Now, this was self-imposed. So Edgar Allan Poe went to West Point, fulfilled, fulfilled the deal with his dad, gets there, not for him. And especially he gets there after having John Neal say that glowing literary review about like what he wants to do, about his book of poetry. right? So he gets to West Point, and it's not for him. But he's popular amongst his cadets. Apparently he wrote like short jokes and limericks and poems about like the commanding officers, made everybody laugh, right? But he knows it wasn't for him. So as self-imposed, he gets court-martialed because he wanted to be a writer. His class, all of his cadet classmates know about this. So they know that Edgar Allan Poe is just not doing anything because he's going to get written up, and then he's going to go to court-martial. He doesn't plead anything, so he gets himself kicked out of West Point to become a writer because he got that positive from John Neal. He's like, dude, I don't even know. What I'm I came here because my dad, I don't know what I'm doing, right? So he leaves West Point. So check this out. This is like the first Patreon ever, right? So Edgar Allan Poe leaves West Point. And all of his classmate cadets, who all liked him for joking around, talking shit, making them laugh, right? All of his, or a lot of his classmate cadets, they all collect 75 cents a piece. They pull it all together, and then they give all that money to Edgar Allan Poe as like, yo, dude, I know we all know you want to be a writer. Here's 75 cents from all of us. I believe in you. Thanks for making us laugh and shit, dude. Good luck. I know this wasn't for you. Total amount of money that Edgar Allan Poe got from his West Point classmates 170 bucks, which in 1830 was 170 bucks. But if you do the math, the little put it in Google and see how much money that is today, it's like five grand. That's pretty cool. Pretty cool little note of the story there. All right. So after the Patreon from his cadet friends, he moves to Baltimore, writes and publishes the third book, dedicating it to his old cadet friends at West Point. After this, he starts making a uh, living as a writer. 
So that's the short bio of Edgar Allan Poe. Also, I don't mean to gloss over what making a living as a writer was at the time where Edgar Allan Poe tried to do it, because people say that he was the first dude in America to try and do that. As in, I'm just going to live off of writing. Everybody else is kind of doing the Ben Franklin thing, where it's like, all right, I might, I might write some stuff, and then I also am a cobbler, and then uh, I, I moonlight as a policeman, and then uh, on Thursdays, I'm a public librarian. But I'm also writing about the human experience. Edgar Allan Poe is like, no, I'm just going writer. I'm, I'm down here. John Neal gave me some stuff. He said I was good. All my friends at West Point gave me 170 bucks, like five grand. I can make this work, dude. We're going for it. Nobody had done it before. It was a, it was a strange, and there was no copyright law at the time either. I found this, that in trying to be a professional only writer, live off my writing, Edgar Allan Poe in Baltimore, there's no copyright law. So aside from newspapers and publications in America, maybe not liking the shit he wrote, maybe not wanting to publish it, maybe they do publish it and then just tell him to kick rocks when it's time to pay him because there's no copyright law. Also, since there's no copyright law, American publications could just steal whatever they wanted from Great Britain and print that shit up here and there was no legal ramifications. So Edgar Allan Poe was really up against it as far as I'm going to make my life as a writer. There's no cop. Nobody says they have to pay him. But he, he's got five grand from his friends. He's got a positive review by John Neal, which is more than a lot of people, other people have. So he makes a run at it. Now, just real quick, other life events that leads us up to him writing the cask of Amatilado, And we're going to blow through these. August 1831, Poe's brother who wrote The Pirate. Henry dies of tuberculosis, so he loses his brother, 1831. 1835, hello, Edgar Allan Poe marries Virginia Clem. She was his cousin, and, uh, and he was 26, and she was 13. Right. Not good. All right, January 1842, Virginia Clem blows a blood vessel in her throat, showing signs of tuberculosis. January 29th, 1845, Edgar Allan Poe's poem, The Raven, is an Avengers movie level smash hit. Okay. And then uh, November 1846, Edgar Allan Poe publishes The Cask of Amatilado, which is the story we're going to be looking at in a second. And then uh, January 30th, 1847, Poe's wife, Virginia Clem, would die of tuberculosis. All right. That's the end of the general backstory explaining Poe's basic mindset. Where'd he come from? He's not of portal origin. Just basics before we get into the actual drama behind the cask of Amatilado. Okay, next part. The cask of Amatilado. All right, this is a short story. Again, we covered it less than 2,500 words based on revenge. It is written from the first person perspective. So the narrator in the cask of Amatilado is the guy, is the murderer. Goldeneye 007, that's how it's written. First person shooter, first person murderer story here. And the cask of Amatilado ends with the narrator burying a guy alive. Which I don't think is a spoiler or anything. We're going to go through the story anyway, but I'm not going to read the story spooky. I'm not going to try to like be, be scary with it. Uh, I'm gonna, but when we go through it, I am going to try to point out what parts of the cask of Amatilado were meant 
directly for the writer that he was having a feud with when he wrote it. Okay. Now, the cask of Amontillado was written directly at somebody. That guy's name was Thomas Dunn English. So, and to better understand why Pope wrote this about this guy, we got to delve into the American literary scene of 1845 real quick. All right. Backstory. American literary scene, 1845. All right. February of 1845, Edgar Allan Poe gave a lecture in New York in which he criticized American poetry. Specifically, he called Henry Wadsworth Longfellow a thief. Which apparently, we, I, I don't even know who Henry Wadsworth Longfellow is. That's not, that's not what the episode's about, but I've heard the guy's name before. Probably an important poet. Edgar Allan Poe is kind of known for being a critic of... He was like a well-known guy who would say if somebody wrote something and it sucked, Edgar Allan Poe would, would publicly be like, yo, that sucked. So people were kind of... People kind of respected him, didn't want to make him mad. Uh, but all he would say what he felt. So at this speech, calls Longfellow a thief. Also in the same speech, Edgar Allan Poe gives compliments to an American writer, Francis Sargent Osgood. Okay, now Francis Sargent Osgood is a New York-based American poet, and she was one of the most popular women writers during her time. After this speech, Francis Osgood and Edgar Allan Poe start hooking up. All right. And Poe's wife ends up being cool with it. Like they know, they they just, it's just, it is how it, you know. Francis Osgood comes over the house sometimes because Poe's wife's dying of tuberculosis. Also, Francis Osgood showing signs of the beginning of having tuberculosis that she's going to die from. So Poe's hooking up with Francis Osgood. He does have a wife. You know, these things are happening. This is when fellow New York City poet Elizabeth F. Elliot, whose affection for Poe, he had scorn. Oh, this girl starts spreading rumors about Poe and Osgood's friendship, being like, yo, you know, they're, you know, that's a lot more than a friendship. So much so that this lady, Elizabeth Elliot, contacts Poe's wife, who's dying of tuberculosis, about the alleged impropriety. So she calls his wife, and he's like, yeah, you know your man's cheating on you, da-da-da. But, like, Poe had already had that girl come over to the house. Like, they, everybody kind of knew about each other. Now, I don't know if Poe's wife knew that they were hooking up or because Poe's wife has said that, like, she didn't mind that girl being around because if they have a friendship, maybe he'll be more loyal or whatever. I actually don't know if it was, like, an ancient open relationship or if it was kind of dicey or what. But either way, Elizabeth Elliot is calling Poe's house trying to tell his wife about stuff he's doing. To which Poe responds by more or less saying, like, yo, remember when you sent me all those nasty letters? Why don't you stop being jealous and get out of my life? Stop calling my family. I got my, I had nothing to do with you. I, not, what I do has nothing to do with you. Why don't you stop? Remember when you sent me those letters, though? To which Elizabeth Elliot starts telling people that Edgar Allan Poe is lying about those nasty letters, and she demands the nasty letters back from Edgar Allan Poe here. Okay. And, the, and what Elizabeth Elliot says is, look, I'm going to send my brother down there. You got to go give those letters that I sent to you, but there's nothing nasty in them. I'm not going to admit to anything, and it's messed up that you're talking like that. You're going to have to meet my brother and give him those letters back, and then we'll be okay because this has gotten way out of control. I don't care if I called your house or whatever. Stop saying this shit about me. This is when, all right, Edgar Allan Poe, 
trying to figure out how to give these nasty letters back, whether to give these nasty letters back, whether to just let it ride and not give a shit about it. Pose in Philadelphia with his friend at the time, Thomas Dunn English. Now, Poe tells English what's going on, tells him about the brother handoff thing that's got to happen, and then Edgar Allan Poe asks his friend, Thomas Dunn English, he's like, yo, dude, if I'm going to go give these letters to this brother, you got to give me a gun. I'm going to go meet that brother and shit, but, like, I need you to give me a gun for this meeting just in case anything happens. You know, I don't know it's going to go on. To which Thomas Dunn English who aside from being a writer and would go on to be like a House of Representatives guy, for he was from Philly. He went to like University of Penn. He was a practicing lawyer at the time in Philadelphia when this conversation happened. So Edgar Allan Poe's like, yo, give me a gun for this. His friend, Thomas Dunn English, is like, I'm not going to give you a gun, dude. That is the worst idea I've ever heard. Why would you bring a gun to hand off letters? I don't want you to kill this guy and get arrested. You're my friend. I'm not going to give you a gun. To which... Edgar Allan Poe and Thomas Dunn English then get in a fist fight. I'm guessing because Thomas English said no to giving Poe a gun. Either way, they get in a fist fight at this point in time, right? Now, I tried to look into who won this fist fight. Couldn't figure it out. What they do say is that Edgar Allan Poe suffered a cut in the fist fight because Thomas Dunn English was wearing rings. So whether or not he won or lost the fight, he walked away from the fight looking like he lost because he got cut bad by a ring. Thomas Dunn English had him on. He landed at least one on Poe's head. So Poe left this fist fight leaking. And then I tried to look up height and weight to get the tail of the tape on these two to try to figure out how this fist fight might have went. Okay. Tough to find height and weight for dudes way back in the day. But I did find, and actually it's Thomas Dunn English who describes Poe's height. He put him somewhere between 5'1 and 5'2 and a half. I couldn't find Thomas Dunn English's alleged height or weight. I was looking, dude. I found all the things about being a senator, going to Penn. Every, every picture, I was trying to find a picture of him next to a guy, like on a Wild West picture, and be like, all right, well, how tall is that guy? Couldn't find it. Everything's just a bus shot of this guy. So if we have Poe listed it, let's be generous and call it 5'2 and a half. We'll take the high end of that. I estimate I checked out how tall was the average man in the 1800s to try to figure out how tall Thomas Dunn English might have been for this fist fight. The average man in the 1800s was 65.75 inches tall, which translates into about five foot five inches tall. So if we're giving Thomas Dunn English the average size, he's at least got two inches and I don't know how much reach on Poe. And that's if Thomas Dunn English, if that fact, if he wasn't even taller than that. Edgar Allan Poe was definitely at a size and reach advantage here in this fight. And Thomas Dunn English had rings on, which is documented because he cut Poe. So I can't tell you who won this fight and who lost it. Oh, also, the only other thing I found about how tall dudes were back in the day. Uh, somebody wrote a thing and they used an algebra textbook from 1912. And that listed the average male height in 1912 as 5'8 But... I don't really know how accurate that number is because 1912 is way different from 1830 because you had the whole Industrial Revolution, the amount of food that's available as far as how, helping people grow, grow taller. I don't know. Either way, Edgar Allan Poe giving up at least two inches in this fight. I don't know how much reach. He got clubbed. Also, he may have been possibly hammered. I don't know. That just makes sense. Like Nobody says that in any of the stories, but Poe is known for just being blacked out all the time. 
And that sounds like a conversation that would happen while a guy with a drinking problem is also hammered where it's like, okay, I got to get these letters back. Cause I started a whole bunch of shit with people for no reason. Hey man, can you give me a gun? That sounds like hammered guy logic. So aside from the height, you know, height and reach advantage also may have been blacked out and had no rings on. So he probably lost this fist fight either way. That is, uh, that is the end of Edgar Allan Poe and Thomas Dunn English hanging out and being friends with each other. But that's not where the drama ends. No, he's not writing the book yet. He's not writing Cask of Amontillado yet. He's still chilling out. Then, in 1846, Thomas Dunn English then publishes a short story called 1844. Now, in the short story, 1844... There is a character named Marmaduke Hammerhead. Which when I found this, I was like, that's pretty weird. We did Hammerhead Sharks last week. But anyway, so this character, Marmaduke Hammerhead, that's in this Thomas Dunn English book, is supposed to represent Edgar Allan Poe. Like, obviously. He's not even hiding it. Now, the character Marmaduke Hammerhead is a liar. He blacks out all the time. He's physically abusive to his wife. And he's known for writing, and this is in the short story, 1844, the character Marmaduke Hammerhead is known for writing a story called The Black Crow, and saying shit like Nevermore, which Edgar Allan Poe published The Raven in 1845, and they say Nevermore in that a shitload, I'm pretty sure, but again, I didn't cover that one, but that that's, I'm just assuming that's, that's where that's come from. If I'm wrong, I'll take that one on the chin. That's wrong. But I think that's pretty sure that that's the Raven. I quote the Raven nevermore. Yeah, dude. WCW, the Raven. I remember that. Anyway, so that's Thomas Dunn English takes the first shot in literary publication, making a character named Marmaduke Hammerhead, a lion blacking out a dude who, like, physically abuses to his wife. Everybody knows this. Everybody knows that this character is Edgar Allan Poe. People are also, uh, at least people in the literary scene, they all know about that saga between the letters and the pistol and the fist fight and the rings on and all that other shit. So then when this sto short story comes out, Edgar Allan Poe must have been furious. And this is when, November of 1846, this brings us to Edgar Allan Poe with a wife who's dying of tuberculosis, likely years into alcohol dependence, and coming off most likely losing a fistfight to a guy who just published a short story making fun of him the whole time, Edgar Allan Poe sits down to write The Cask of Amatolato about Thomas Dunn English. All right, that's the backstory. We're going to have a short little... And then we're going to run through the plot. Again, I'm not going to try to read it creepy or anything, but I am going to go through the plot points and point out what parts of this story... We're meant to directly take shots at Thomas Dunn English. All right, I'll be right back. Here we go. Edgar Allan Poe, The Cask of Amatolato. This is from 1846. All you really need to know about this short story, the narrator is called Montresor. That guy symbolizes Edgar Allan Poe. The other character in this story is a dude named Fortunato. That guy represents Thomas Dunn English who is the former friend of Edgar Allan Poe, who then beat him up in the street with rings on like a year before this. And then after that, Thomas Dunn English then published 1844, which is a short story that made fun of Edgar Allan Poe and Code. So the guy beat him up and then he wrote a thing making fun of him. That's Fortunato. 
And then there is a third character that's referred to in the story, but we never see or hear anything from him. He's called Luchesi. Montresor may just make this guy up to further trick Fortunato into sealing his own fate. Anyway, so the whole story takes place in Italy around Carnival time, so everybody's in Eyes Wide Shut party masks and stuff, and the character Fortunato is in full original jester gear with, like, the bells on the shoes with the pointy tips and then the hat that jingle jangles. That's what Fortunato is wearing. Montresor is just hanging out at the Carnival. This is his whole master plan. All right. So, for the first 107 words of this story... Edgar Allan Poe, as the narrator Montresor, just starts talking about, like, the thousand injuries of Fortunato I had borne the best I could. Like, he just goes into, like, I've tried to put up with this guy. I can't put up with this guy. I'm going to bury him to death tonight. All right, next part. The narrator talks about how Fortunato has no idea that he's about to get buried to death by his alleged friend Montresor. So much so that the narrator Montresor talks about how when Fortunato ever sees him smile... Fortunato thinks that Montresor's smiling because they're good friends. However, Montresor talks about how he's actually smiling because he knows he's going to bury him to death and murder him one day. All right. Then the narrator talks about how he's going to kill Fortunato using his weak point, which is his pride, because Fortunato thinks that he's a really good wine taster. And Montresor's like, I also taste wine. I don't know if any of us are good at it, but I'm going to use this to trap him and I'm going to bury him alive. I can't wait. All right. So we're at carnival season now. Just by chance, Montresor then runs into Fortunato. Fortunato in full jingle jangle gear, and he is also hammered. All right. They meet each other like, oh, what's up, dude? And then Montresor is like, oh, my God, I'm glad I ran into you. I just bought a pipe of Amatolato, which is a type of wine. And then the measurement, how much is a pipe? I looked it up. It's 126 gallons. All right, so... Narrator, murderer, Montresor, Edgar Allan Poe finds his buddy, Thomas Dunn English, a.k.a. Fortunato, who's banged up in a jester costume. And Montresor's like, hey, I bought 126 gallons of this awesome wine. I think I got screwed on it, though. I couldn't find anybody to taste it. I know that you're really good at tasting wine. Maybe could you help me out? Like, I know it's downstairs in this crypt that's totally not a trap or anything, and nobody can hear you scream. But I got it down there. I think I got beat on the price, man. Anyway, I got to... You know, I got a pipe of Amatolato. Do you want to help me out and try to try to help me with this? And Fortunato is all banged up. And he's like, oh, yeah, dude, Amatolato. He starts screaming, Amatolato, Amatolato. And then uh, the narrator Montresor is like, I don't know if it's real. You got to help me, right? So then the narrator Montresor is like, actually, it was good to see you, Fortunato. It's been nice talking to you. However, I am on the way to go see, you know, our friend Lucchese? He's going to actually help me taste the Amatolato to see if I got beat on it. I don't really know, but that's actually what I'm doing. Anyway, it was good to see you, man. Glad you're out having a good time. Then Fortunato traps himself in this murder plot. I guess this was the plan of the narrator the whole time is to try to bait him into like, oh, you Lucius, that guy doesn't know shit. I could help you out. Where's that Amatolato at? So that's what Jingle Bells on his head says. And then he's like, all right, well, I'll go downstairs with you. So, Montresor and Fortunato then start going down into this damp catacombs grave thing that is on the family property of Montresato. I guess it was close to the carnival. Again, narrator playing this whole thing out. Anyway, so Fortunato is all, all he's drunk. He, he doesn't know what he's doing. He's just, he's trying to get more booze. It happens. He's looking for that Amatolato. 
So he takes the narrator, Montresor's hand, and they start going down in this, in this crypt. Now, as they're going down there, Montresor, knowing he's going to bury this guy alive, starts being like, oh, it's pretty damp down here. Don't you have a cough? You should really turn back. You got a cough. People like you. And in the story, Poe wrote the line uh, that Montresor says to um, Fortunato. He's like, you have a lot to live for. People like you the way they used to like me. Right? And so anyway, Fortunato is still going downstairs with Montresor. And Montresor is like, seriously, you think about your health. It's pretty bad down here. I bet it's great Amontillado, but I don't want you to risk you. You know, people love you. Fortunato, again, whether it's his pride or taking the bait or whatever, he's like, what are you talking about? We're going downstairs to check out this booze. I bet it's good. You always got a good, I bet you bought good Amontillado. Let's check it out. What are we talking about? I'm coughing. It's fine. So at this point in time, the narrator, Montresor, tells the reader that he sent all of his servants home from like the crypt and the house by the crypt. Anybody who's working anywhere close to where this dude's about to get buried alive got to go home or I got a half day in service day. I don't know. You had somewhere to be. You got to go, go do just, I don't know. Go vote. I have no idea. The whole fucking staff went home. So there's nobody there to hear Fortunato scream. It's all part of the master murder plan going on here. So as they continue to descend down into the crypts, they grab a couple of torches. They take a winding staircase down, which I, I don't know. I, I feel like that's in every Edgar Allan Poe story, but it definitely fit when I read it in this one. So down a windy staircase, there's bones all over the place stacked up and shit. They're going down, down, down into a wine cellar catacomb area. Fortunato is still blacked out, hammered. And it says at one point in time, he, uh, Fortunato looks up at Montresor in the eyes and Montresor sees that Fortunato has just like booze glassed over eyes, doesn't know what's going on. All right. And at this, after like the boozy eye contact, Fortunato is like, what are you talking about? It's like damp down here. He cites this thing uh, like nitrate or whatever that Montresor earlier was like, ah, oh, there's a lot of like nitrate down there. It'll mess your lungs up. And Fortunato, after he has hammered eyes, is like, what nitrate are you even talking about down here? And then he goes on like a coughing spell for a little bit. And then after he's done his coughing spell, he's like, oh yeah, I got you. All right, well, it's nothing. Let's keep it moving. All right, at this point in time, Montresor, the narrator, after the coughing spell, again is like, Seriously, people like you, maybe we should turn back, trying to bait him even more and more to get more aggressive about going to see this Amontillado. So Fortunato's like, I'm pressing on. Come on, man. We're already there. We went down a winding staircase. I got to go back up that thing. I'm going to cough when I go back up it. I know my lungs, so let's just keep going. Let's get this booze, dude. So narrator then gives Fortunato like, uh, like a flask or like just a quick hit of a different kind of wine called like Medoc. They have some Medoc together on the way down. Just trying to booze up Fortunato more and more because you know he's going to bury him alive soon. So Fortunato and narrator, they drink together and the narrator's like, to your long life. And Fortunato's like, oh, thanks, man. So they have more booze and they keep on going down to this death trap Montresor had planned for him. All right. So as they get closer to the, uh, the death trap, Fortunato asked the narrator about like, oh, is this all your property? And the narrator's like, yeah, my family name was like pretty cool, but then somebody was spreading rumors and stuff, and then I'm not sure exactly what happened, but now we don't have a whole, you know, we don't have a whole lot of money left. Fortunato's like, oh, that's cool. Anyway, what's your coat of arms? To which the narrator says, it's a foot crushing a snake, and the snake's trying to bite the heel, but the foot is crushing it so bad. And Fortunato's like, cool. Fortunato then asked the actual Latin of the family crest, and the actual Latin is Nemo me impune lasset, which translates into no one punishes me and gets away with it. 
And in the story, after the narrator quotes the Latin to Fortunato, Fortunato knows what that means. And Fortunato is just like, oh, good. That is a good one, dude. Anybody that betrays you, you step on them. I get it. Let's keep it going. After that conversation, they both have more booze. And Fortunato takes the narrator's arm again. We're still going down deep into this crypt. All right. Still moving. Narrator gives more booze to Fortunato. They drink more. But this time, the narrator gives Fortunato some type of wine called De Grave, which is apparently supposed to be like high-level expensive wine that you're supposed to sip. Anyway, so he gives it to Fortunato, and Fortunato like shotguns it, which is supposed to be like a, a dig at Thomas English for like not being an actual refiner, like maybe being an alcoholic. Anyway, you're not supposed to shotgun De Grave, apparently, but that's what happens in the story. And the narrator kind of is like, oh, man. Like in his head, he's like pretty... Uh, out of a pig, shotgun, the grab. You're supposed to enjoy that. That's supposed to be a dig at Thomas English. All right. And then as they continue making their way downstairs, Fortunato, after he's done shotgun and the grab, does some sort of uh, hand signal to Montresor. And Montresor's like, what are you doing? And then Fortunato's like, don't you, you know what this is, dude, right? It's a Masonic hand signal. You're a Mason, right? And then Montresor's like, yeah, I'm a Mason. And Fortunato's like, no, you're not. You didn't do the hand signal. You don't know what the hell I'm talking about. To which Montresor then pulls his cloak back. I'm guessing both dudes are wearing cloak, even if you're a jester. These are cloak days. So Montresor pulls his cloak back when he's asked about being a Mason. And he pulls out, it's called, what's that thing called? It's called a trowel. But it's, it's the triangle bricklaying tool that's been in every cartoon that featured bricks since the beginning of time. The narrator, Montresor, has one of those hidden in his cloak. And so when Fortunato asked him for like, dude, are you a Mason? As a joke, Montresor, the narrator, pulls out that triangle from every cartoon ever. And he's like, I'm a Mason, look at this. To which Fortunato's like, ha, 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 that's great. Doesn't think that's weird at all that you have one of those or anything. Montresor puts the shit back in his cloak. Fortunato's like, all right, so are we almost at the bottom or what? Montresor's like, we're getting there. They continue to send further into the crypt. To and then they hit a nook. It's at the very bottom of the crypt. All right, now the dimensions on this nook, it's in between two of those giant arches that are piled full of bones. It, it said that the nook was just made because two of those giant things didn't fit together absolutely perfectly. So the dimensions on the nook in between those two giant bone arches, all right, it's a little, it's, it's so small. Right? So you're looking in between those two arches. It goes back four feet deep. It's only three feet wide. And it's about seven or eight feet up. Right? So you're looking three feet across, four feet back, seven, eight feet up. It's a nook, right? But this is where Montresor has been taken. Oh, I forgot the guy's name. Fortunato. I almost got it. I, that's the first time screwing those names up. There's a lot of autos going on here. I'm doing okay. Anyway. So they get to the nook. Fortunato is like, okay, well, where's the Amontillado at? And Montresor is like, it's actually at the very back end of this nook. It's, it's dark. You can't see the back of it. It's at the very back of this nook. You got to check it out, man. So Fortunato's hammered. He's like, sounds good. We're getting this Amontillado going. Let's go. So Fortunato walks to the back of the nook, only four feet deep, to which Montresor follows him. It's then revealed that at the back wall, that's four feet deep, three feet wide, on the back wall, which is solid granite, there's two, like, hooks in the solid granite wall. And from one hook is, like, a long length of chain. 
And from the other hook is like a shorter length of chain with a padlock on it. So Montresor's like, yo, go back in that nook and check out that Amontillado. Fortunato gets back there. Montresor follows him. And then it said that he, like, I did think it's funny that Edgar Allan Poe wrote himself winning a fight in this story because of prior events that happened in real life. So there's a scuffle. And Montresor, a.k.a. Edgar Allan Poe, pushes Fortunato up against the wall. Fortunato is helpless physically in this situation. Totally not like real life, you know? So then as he pushes Fortunato up against the, uh, up against the wall, he does the chain thing. And it's said that, he, that Montresor chains Fortunato around the waist, which I have a hard time picturing because unless you get him to suck in his diaphragm above the hips and below the... I don't know. I've never been chained up around the waist and I've never chained anybody up around the waist, but I have like wiggled out of stuff. I feel like around the... But whatever. Anyway, maybe Montresor playing this out. He chains him up expertly around the waist and at this, Fortunato... Doesn't really even know what, what's going on. He kind of thinks it's a joke, and he still just thinks he's he's down there to bang down some amatolato. So he's chained up now, and Fortunato doesn't get it. And, but he does start screaming for the amatolato. Maybe he thinks it's a party joke. I don't know. While Fortunato's chained up and screaming for amatolato, Montresor then goes out of the nook and then goes up to a bone pile that's like close to the nook. Obviously pre-planned here. Montresor kicks like some skulls and femur bones off of the top of the pile, revealing Mason Stone. Oh, what's that in-between stuff? And Mortar. There we go. I knew I was going to forget that. I was, I've, I've read that wrong doing the story like two times. I knew I was going to forget Mortar. Anyway, so Montresor kicks off the bones. There's stones and mortar down there. And so he starts laying stones and mortar to seal Fortunato up in that little nook. All the help went home. Nobody can hear him. Fortunato doesn't know exactly what's going on, but he is chained up around the waist, which apparently he can't escape no matter how hard he tries to slink out of it. So Montresor starts piling up these levels. He does. He lays the first level, the second level, the third level, the fourth tier. He's going all the way up. At the fourth tier, Fortunato sobers up a little bit, sees what's happening, because if he's chained up against the wall, it's less than three feet in front of him that Montresor is building a wall to lock him in and kill him. So after the fourth tier, Fortunato starts screaming all sorts of shit, to which the narrator, Montresor, a.k.a. Poe, the guy who's detailing this, this murder, uh, stops as Fortunato is screaming. After the fourth tier, the narrator stops to enjoy the screams of Fortunato. He only stops while Fortunato is screaming hard, and then once Fortunato stops screaming, he goes right back to laying tears. So... Starts building again when the screaming stops. He's up to the 8th tier, the ninth tier, the 10th tier, the 11th tier. He gets all the way where there's only one stone left to finish this wall and wall this dude in. Forever, right? He's going to kill the guy, right? So before he puts the last stone in, Fortunato starts talking. And it, in the story, Montresor says it doesn't even sound like Fortunato because Fortunato was like a brave guy who like was known for being confident and stuff. So at the very end, Fortunato starts doing that thing of like, ha ha ha, this is a great joke, man. We should get back to the party though, right? You know? Like he's really scared, but he's trying to do the it's a joke thing. So for the last move, Montresor, about to put the last stone in, tries to like peek up over into the nook to see what's going on with Fortunato. He can't see what's going on in there. So he just throws his torch in, trying to hear like, is this dude still awake or what? After he throws his torch in the hole where the last stone goes, 
He hears like some jingle jangle of the Jester Bell hat go. And then he just goes and puts the last stone in and seals that guy up and kills him. And the last part of the story, Edgar Allan Poe hits like an M. Night Shyamalan ending. And after detailing how he sealed the guy up and tricked him all the way down there, and that's the end of it, the last line is like, and that's how I did it 50 years ago. So the whole like M. Night Shyamalan twist is that he, the actual story, like he killed a guy 50 years ago. So that is the cask of Amatolato. That is Edgar Allan Poe's revenge story directed at the guy who beat him up when he had rings on in Philadelphia like a year and a half prior, Thomas English. Guys, thank you for listening to the show. I like doing this one, and uh, I'll, uh, I'll talk to you guys later on. All right, I'll see you. Bye.